Thank you, Pastor Vikram. Well, this feels a lot like a classroom, so I expect you to have a mechanical pencil and a notepad. Uh, there will be a test at the end, so be prepared. Also, uh, by way of what we'll talk about this morning, um, th this will be more of a classroom setting. So feel free to interrupt. You can ask questions. You can raise your hand or just start shouting, whatever you want. Um, if you do ask a question or interrupt, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. So uh, I want you to uh, tell me your first and last name. And I've been at Countryside for how long? Okay, 80 years or 8 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so uh, at any rate, there are no rules here um, for this morning's session. I do want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you want to put a title on the jumble of thoughts this morning, it will be this, Singleness to Advantage. Singleness to Advantage. And what I really want to press is how do we make the most of the season we are in? And the principles that we'll derive from 1 Corinthians 7 they were derived from the Apostle Paul in a very specific situation that's not identical to ours. Um, and, and the principles that are there uh, will have application to whatever season of life you find yourself in right now. Uh, you may be single, you may be in a relationship, you might be married. Um, you might, like me, have four daughters um, who are being courted or will be. And uh, that's a different vantage point as well. Um, but all of these things relate to principles here in 1 Corinthians 7. This is a good place uh, for us to uh, examine and allow the scriptures to examine us. So I'm going to pray for us and, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men. What a privilege it is to speak with men about things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, I pray that you would uh, drive the principles from your word deep into our hearts that they might form rock-solid convictions from which principles are derived, uh, the way we live our lives are cultivated. Lord, we thank you for the rich treasure of your word. You have not left us adrift uh, without direction, uh, without principles for living, uh, so that we would have to make up life on our own. Uh, we thank you that you, the author of life, the giver of all things, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, that you have actually given us instruction. And we pray to heed it, that we would be wise, uh, that we would be blessed by you in it, and that uh, we would be the kind of men that you are pleased to use for the progress of the gospel, for things that matter for eternity. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 7. And looking down at verse 1, Paul begins this chapter by saying, Now concerning things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And there, there's, a, there's a great theme verse for a singles conference weekend. <laughs> um, just, to, just to know at the front end, the Corinthian believers have asked Paul some specific questions. We don't have a list of their questions here. They have to be inferred from what Paul talks about. But this is a response letter. And I want you to look down at verse 26. I think that it is good, Paul says, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. 
So just to set some context for what Paul is going to tell the Corinthian believers here, he is writing to specific questions they asked from a specific context they were in. And he calls it a present distress. Now we, we might infer from that that there is a particular level of persecution or difficulty for Christian living at the time in Corinth. It was not stable. And if you know anything about the Corinthian context, uh, you, you know that Corinth as a city was sort of a metropolitan area and a trade city. People from all over the world ended up at Corinth to take goods, to buy goods, to trade ideas uh, across continents. And so it became a mixing bowl and a hodgepodge of all kinds of things. But the Corinthian culture was notoriously immoral. In fact, the city of Corinth became a verb. To Corinthianize was to involve yourselves in sexual immorality of all kinds of, uh, of, of ways. What's interesting about the church at Corinth is they had tolerated a man in their midst, according to 1 Corinthians 5, who had Corinthianized in a way that was above and beyond the Corinthian culture. And, and they hadn't practiced church discipline. The man was not removed. I believe that is the man that is restored to fellowship in 2 Corinthians and brought back in uh, after repentance. However, um, the, the church at Corinth was not as it should be. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians is a rebuke, a series of rebukes. Uh, they have uh, loved externals. Uh, they love being entertained by speakers rather than a clear, unadulterated proclamation of the Word of God. They have pitted church leaders against one another and picked their favorites. Uh, they bought into sort of the celebrity culture as the standard of how Christian preaching ought to be done. Uh, they are suing one another. First Corinthians 6, don't sue one another. They, they have taken uh, their disagreements outside the church into the secular law courts. Uh, they are selfish. You look at their use of, of the spiritual gifts. They have supernatural abilities by the Holy Spirit at the foundational gener first generation of the church. And they are practicing these things not for the building up of the church, but for self-edification, self-exaltation. So they had an ability to, to speak a human language they'd never studied by supernatural miraculous power. And they were showing off. Uh, the, the whole letter is filled with rebuke. So in the midst of all of this, Paul is answering questions about marriage. Now he gives in 1 Corinthians 7 three categories of singles. Three categories of singles. And, and they are called there the unmarried, the virgin, and the widow. And, and it's helpful at the front end just to understand these three categories that he's answering questions about. Um, we understand the, the virgin category is the one who has never been married, never yet been married. Um, the unmarried is the category of people who are not married, who were married at one point, um, divorced or abandoned in some way. Um, and then the widow, of course, is the one who was married, but the spouse is deceased. And in a, in a culture where the gospel was new, in the Corinthian culture, these categories become very important. Because you're, you're dealing with first generation believers that have come from a, a mess of worldly understanding about sex, about marriage, about singleness, about remarriage, about divorce, all of those kinds of things. And so uh, Paul is picking up a specific instruction that I think would have reflected his time there at Corinth, 
when he was teaching them, when he was discipling them, uh, and then, okay, here's some follow-up questions. What do we do in this situation, this situation, and this situation, given the current difficult context? Uh, were they under persecution? Uh, was the worldly pressure of sexual perversion just making such confusion uh, that Paul gave these specific instructions? We're not told the details, but we do understand that the context here pressed Paul to give some specific advice to them in their situation. So, look, in, look again at verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, what is the, the banner over this chapter? Uh, it is, immorality is rampant. What is the solution to immorality? Get married. Okay. Now, uh, we're going to come to probably every single man's favorite verse in the Bible. It is better to marry than to burn. Right? That's in this chapter. Okay? I'm going to suggest you, uh, you keep using that verse. It does not mean what you think it means. Okay, we'll come to that. Um, but at the front end, what is Paul saying? Um, marriage is the solution. But we have to be careful about what the problem is that marriage solves. I would contend that what Paul is getting at here is marriage is the solution for those who wish to be married. Not marriage is the solution to an immoral heart. Okay, that is critical to understand at the front end. Marriage does not solve an immoral heart. What does an immoral heart do when it enters into... A marriage contract behaves immorally. And you just drag a poor girl into the mess of your own heart. Marriage does not solve the heart crisis. Marriage solves the unmarried dilemma. So, um, and by the way, this would mean a lot at Corinth. Um, this sounds so basic to us. Verse 2 just sounds like, well... Seriously, Paul, you had to write that? A man should have his wife and a wife should have her husband. And, and he goes on to describe, and they should be intimate. Well, seriously, isn't that, what it, isn't that normal? Uh, not at Corinth. It wasn't normal. Um, you, you realize it was so normal, and, and our culture is getting there. And, and maybe has gotten there. I may be an old fogey. Okay. Um, Back when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't feel old. I feel like we're peers. I feel like I'm your age. But then I look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm 19 and a half in my own mind. <laughs> How do I have a 19-year-old daughter? That's just bizarre. <laughs> Back when I was a kid. There was shame in premarital sex. There was a stigma to an out-of-wedlock pregnancy. We, we had a phrase called a shotgun wedding. That, that's, that's an archaic term now. By the way, what was a shotgun wedding? Father puts a shotgun to the guy's head, basically says, you're marrying my daughter, you got her pregnant. Yeah, double-barrel, 12-gauge, says, make her an honest woman, young man. Okay. I don't think that's the biblical solution. But it works. <laughs> and and just, just as a biblical counseling basic, think through this. Um, 
if there has been immorality prior to marriage, the solution is not get married to fix it. No, the solution is go talk to your pastors, get discipleship. Uh, let's rethink marriage and sexuality. Let's rethink the heart. You've got a lot of work to do before you ever get into marriage, buddy. Right? Um, but in the old days, there was shame and stigma around fornication. Um, but at Corinth, again, to Corinthianize, to live normally in this town, is sort of like 21st century American culture. Right? You shack up to figure things out. It's almost a shame now to get married not having had sex. How foolish can you be, says the world around us. That's where we're headed, if we're not there already. That was Corinth. And so while verse 2 may seem to the Christian ears like a really obvious statement, not so obvious. Um, a man has his wife and the woman has her husband. Um, the implications of that statement are profound. Normal Corinthian culture involved temple prostitution. In other words, the, the normal way religion was done involved sexual immorality. Uh, no, that's not a Christians. First generation Christians in Corinth, uh, we're going to be different than the world. For, for those of you who have lived in the, the buckle of the Bible Belt, the really big buckle of the Bible Belt in Texas, you know, I'm born in Texas, I'm a Christian. Um, there, there is a norm, and it's going away, I recognize that. But, but we've been riding on the coattails of a biblical worldview that has maintained things like a biblical view of marriage and shame for immorality. All that's going away. The, the norm in our culture is becoming radically immoral. Look down at verse 7. And I know we're just we're, we're not going to do a verse by verse through this whole chapter. I want to highlight some of the principles that come out of it. Paul says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. Uh, what is, what is Paul saying? He, he just compared his own life and ministry to that of marital obligation. So here's a contrast. Husbands and wives have each other. Uh, fulfill your obligations to each other. Be intimate. That's appropriate. Stay away from the immorality that is uh, just perverse and oppressive at Corinth. Now, I wish everybody was like me. What does Paul mean by that? Paul was untethered. And I mean that in a, in a good way. You know, some people, marriage is a ball and chain. Um, the reality is marriage is a tether. A, a really good one. Proverbs 18, 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. I love that verse. It's a great verse. Um, but the reality is, Paul, in his singleness, was able to do things that he could not have done without sinning if he were married. Because he would rightly be concerned about issues related to being a good husband, caring for a wife. Untethered to those really good things, Paul was free. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, what did that untethered life look like? Anybody? Describe it for me. Evangelist. Evangelist. He said, I will do all things, I will suffer all things for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain salvation and with it eternal life. 
What were some of those all things that Paul the evangelist endured for the sake of the elect? Yeah, do that 1 Corinthians 11 list, or 2 Corinthians 11 list. You know, uh, three times beaten with rods, uh, a night and a day in the deep, shipwrecked, in prison, in danger from rivers and robbers. I mean, that, that whole list. And on him, in addition to all those external things, the daily pressure of concern for the churches. Where was Paul's heart? What was he tethered to? To what bride was he married? The church. He lived and breathed and suffered and rejoiced in ministry in ways he could do differently than a married man. And so given Paul's heart for his countrymen, the Jews who rejected him at every turn and hounded him everywhere he went, and he still went to the synagogues and preached Christ as Messiah, and then as the apostle of the Gentiles, everywhere he went, just radical, committed evangelist, suffering for the sake of the gospel. He loved it. Of course that would be uh, flowing out of Paul's heart. I wish there were 18 more Pauls, he would say. And, and he would go on to say, I wish everybody was like me except for these chains. He didn't want people to have to suffer the same things he did, but he sure wished that people believed the gospel and ran around the world with the gospel free like he was. Now that's contrary to, and I don't, I don't mean a, a contradiction, but it is a different sentiment that, than Paul expresses in, say, 1 Timothy 5. Do you remember Paul's instruction to widows in 1 Timothy 5? He said, I want younger widows to marry. And Paul loved marriage. Paul's the, one, the same one that wrote Ephesians 5. Um, he, he loved marriage. He extolled marriage. He knew that marriage was an emblem, a living parable of Christ's love for the church and the church's devotion to Jesus. It's good. Um, the, the, the whole view of marriage from the Bible is a good one. And yet Paul recognizes untethered advantage. Now, what is the principle for us? We're not sitting at Corinth. None of us are the Apostle Paul. But there is a principle embedded here about how we should view singleness. Uh, uh, of any of the three sorts. Uh, widowed, no longer married, or virgin. Any of those three categories. Not yet married, no longer married, or widowed. How should we think about that? Use it to advantage. It is a unique season. Now what's interesting about verse 7, look down at it. Paul refers to a gift. Each man has his own gift. This is the, this is the proof text this is the, the Bible verse for the gift of singleness, right? You've heard that before. Uh, you, you guys have said, oh, no, Lord, please don't give me that gift. <laughs> Speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, just not singleness. I wish, I wish I could speak French and not have to take French class, you know, whatever. Uh, and there's debate about whether the gift of singleness is the seasonal gift of opportunity that may come and may go, or whether the gift of singleness is a, a secret decoder ring discoverable gift that you find out you had to much regret, or a guy recognizes, you know what, I, I really am so absorbed with the gospel 
in the progress of the gospel and the growth and the edification of the church. And God has gifted me for certain things and given me a drive and a desire that getting married would just interfere with. I'd rather be married to the church. Um, so, uh, of those three realms, the, the one I listed in the middle is not really an option. <laughs> but, the two legitimate options are a seasonal opportunity or a uniqueness that a man has in a life or a young lady. Um, so, I'll let Pastor Vikram answer which one of those is uh, exegetically and contextually sound. Uh, I will give you, by way of example, uh, a seasonal uh, example that I know in my life and, and a lifetime one, um, both of whom are pastors. Uh, a, a personal friend of mine, he's my age. Um, when I got married, he did not. And he did not because he was pastoring in a persecuted country in a very serious context. And I believe his grandfather was hauled off for preaching the gospel and never seen again. <clears throat> And I don't know the story on his father, but he's a multi-generational believer and a pastor, and he was very well known in his country and was a lightning rod for attention from an oppressive government. Uh, regularly, he was hauled into offices and interrogated. Regularly, and he was, I, if there is a gift of evangelism, I think this guy had it. Uh, he would just share the gospel with people very simply, clearly, uh, he, and, and people would just believe. And so the, he got a lot of attention from the government. He was training a lot of pastors. And at one level, uh, he, he was probably the, the um, I don't know how to say this, I'll say it uh, kind, of, kind of crudely, the most eligible bachelor in the country that, that every, every pastor who had a daughter wanted to marry his daughter off to. And he refused. He just said, I, I will not get married right now. My life is in week in and week out danger, and I'm not willing to give up ministry to give up the danger. And I wouldn't want to put a wife and kids under the same danger I face all the time. I, I'm in jail regularly. I'm in trouble with the authorities all the time. And they haven't killed me yet, but they could, and then what would, you know, where would that leave a family? As far as I can plan right now, I prefer singleness. Love ministry. Now he's married and has kids. Things cooled off. He had some freedom. And everybody's still alive. Still an oppressive country. Still a persecution-rich environment. Uh, but that was a seasonal deal. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, about 10 years older than I am, faithfully pastoring and has never been married. And he, he could have gotten married, he uh, had opportunities, um, but he was always interested in ministry more than in being married. Those are the categories that, that Paul outlines here for what it means to, I wish that other men were as I am. You know what's not a category? Well, I'm just selfish. I just want to live for myself. I don't want to be tied down. I don't want a ball and chain. Um, I don't want the responsibilities. I don't want to grow up. I just want to live free and do my own thing. That's just sinful. That's just rebellious. That's autonomous. 
that is not a God-glorifying life. That is not a life as a living sacrifice and worship before the Lord. That is not a heartbeat for the church. That's just selfishness. So th that's not an option. Uh, the, the options enjoined here are run hard after Christ. And you may find yourself in a season where running hard after Christ and the opportunities that that presents are more attractive to you than the companionship and the partnership and the, the good things that marriage is. And you may find your life situation continuing in that way for a whole life. And you would look back and say, huh, I guess God gave me the gift of singleness. I don't know that that's something you can see looking forward. Uh, by the way, I don't, I don't think you have some secret tattoo. You get a black light and you go, oh man, I have it. Like it's a disease. <laughs> Right, I think it's something you look back on in the rear view mirror. Any questions on that before we move on? Anybody want to volunteer? Yes, I have a gift of singleness. No, no, I don't. Show okay. Look what Paul says in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain as I. Um, again, don't take this out of the context at Corinth. The, the unmarried and the widows likely, in this context, very likely, would have been in ungodly marriages, non-gospel preaching marriages, and would have a lifetime of patterns of Corinthianizing, of Corinthian thinking that have now been overhauled by the gospel. So, hey... Stay where you're at. There's a present crisis, whether that's persecution or whether that's perverted oppression. My advice is stay, stay where you are. And he'll go on to say, now you're not sinning if you marry. And a dad's not sinning if he gives his daughter to be married. Or potentially the interpretation of the last part of the chapter is um, a, a man who's engaged to a woman. They, they're not sinning if they marry. So th this is Paul's pastoral advice in a given context, understanding the, the situation of the hearts of the Corinthian people, uh, grappling with biblical principles related to divorce and remarriage. It's a very interesting context. And, and I could imagine a scene if, uh, what, you know, look, we, we can paint a lot of scenarios. Uh, if, if the banks collapse and, and we're in the middle of World War III and the church is on the run, um, you know, a Corinthian-type situation could emerge again where we just say, oh man, life is so fast-paced right now. We're just running around sharing the gospel with people. We're the only people with the truth. The world's gone crazy, and we just got to tell people about Jesus. That could happen. Now, I'm a, you, you can probably already tell I'm a conspiracy theorist and a pessimist <laughs> when it comes to human nature. I'm an optimist when it comes to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Who's the they in verse 9? Unmarried and widows. Unmarried and widows. Okay, this is really important in your Bible study. A little hermeneutical sidebar here for a second. Anytime you see a pronoun in your Bible, fill it in with the referent. Okay, what's a pronoun? A noun that gets paid. <laughs> Sorry, grammatical jokes. That's my wheelhouse. What's a subordinate clause? 
Santa's wife. <laughs> Is that wrong? Are you not entertained? <laughs> You're not going to say that to your wife, are you? <laughs> I'm not Santa Claus. <laughs> Okay, uh, pronouns. What's a pronoun? Pronoun is a little word that stands in place of a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. A pronoun, it, he, she, they, them. When you're reading your Bible, fill in the he, she, it with who the he, she, or it is. Right? This will change your Bible reading. And maybe it has changed your Bible reading already. So, I mean, just take by way of example, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lots of pronouns. Fill them in. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on believers' behalf so that believers might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. Right? Changes the way you read your Bible verses. But it is what the author intended. So here in verse 9, who is the they? The unmarried and the widows. So for the single guy gravitating to 1 Corinthians 7-9 saying, man, my lust is out of control. I am an adulterer with my eyes and my heart just burns. I know what I should do. Find a girl. <clears throat> Wrong verse. Wrong verse. Yeah. Uh, my name is James. Uh, I first came to Countryside uh, 2020. September. Thanks, James. Okay, um, so I have a couple of questions um, from this part. Um, so the first one is the unmarried and then the widow. Um, do they think at some point in their lives they can feel like they have the gift of singleness to, um, you know, be in a ministry? And then also the, um, the second question would be um, um, on the on the, this, the verse we just read. Um, if a if a single person at some point, um, not unmarried, not a widow, but somehow did have a sexual relationship before marriage, um, can he also say that maybe he does qualify to feel like he should marry based on this? Okay, great questions, James. And are you asking about pastoral ministry, like the qualification for elders in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Yes. Okay, so full-time vocational ministry. That is a great question for your elders. That is a great practical question to ask because I would imagine behind that question are case-by-case -case situations with individual men. Um, I'll speak generally. Here's some principles to think through. Number one, um, if, if there is uh, uh, sexual failure in the background, um, an important question is... Um, did that happen before someone was a believer, right? Uh, faith in Christ, new birth, new life, that is a threshold uh, where sins prior, in my view, do not automatically disqualify a man. Um, the, the present situation of being a one-woman man and therefore qualified for pastoral ministry or elder qualifications relates to the Christian life. And just by way of example, uh, one of our elders is on his third marriage, right? That, that sounds controversial. 
First marriage, unbiblical, and divorce was unbiblical. Second marriage was unbiblical, the divorce was unbiblical. Third marriage was a marriage of two unbelievers that then got saved subsequently. He was a Christian, a Christian for decades, and is now one of our pastors in our church. So that's how we've applied those principles in our context. Um, every, every case is going to have its nuances, and it's worth asking those questions. Um, can the formerly married and the widow uh, be qualified for ministry? Uh, yes, on, on even easier grounds. Um, if there is a, a, you know, genuine faith and good character, the formerly married... Uh, I believe, is free to remarry. In fact, this passage says you are free to remarry, only do so in the Lord. Um, and so the, the relationship to ministry is, is similar to that. Uh, does that answer your question, James? Yeah. And then, again, I would just refer you to, to your elders to uh, get nuances on any particulars related to that. Is that fair, Vikram? That is fair, yeah. And okay. maybe I'll attempt to answer when we get into the Q&A. Okay, great. As well, so that it doesn't Perfect. stop your flow. Okay, it's great. Um, and I'm okay with the interruptions on the flow. So. Okay, great. Yeah. So we, you might want to think of the, the time as kind of a mix of just... Great. Yeah, and what time are we done with this session? Um, I think we started at 10.15, so about uh, 11, 5, 11, 10. Okay, so, yeah. perfect. Okay. Um, so looking back at verse 9... Um, if they do not have self-control, let them marry. The, the immediate application is to the widowed and formerly married. Okay? Now, there's a, there's a principle for the never yet married there. And again, it goes all the way back to verse 1. Concerning the things you wrote, uh, it's good not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, marriage. Okay? Marriage is the solution to a desire to be married. Uh, if a desire to be married results in, well, I, I, I like the idea of companionship. I guess I'll just take shortcuts and go be immoral like the Corinthians do. That's a problem. <clears throat> Don't take the shortcut. Be married. Um, but you have to have a fully orbed understanding of what marriage is. Um, when Paul says, if the formerly married want to marry, let them marry. If the widowed want to remarry, let them marry. He'll go on in this passage and say, hey, present crisis, it's probably good if you don't, but you're not sinning if you do. And then again in 1 Timothy 5, he tells younger widows, do get married. So those are important principles to keep in mind. The, the issue here, and I think the way sometimes we want to, to read verse 9, um, is, a, is a misunderstanding of the word burn. Burn sounds fiery. But, it, but it, we can import and freight load this word with sinful categories Paul does not intend. Here the word is just strong desire. Someone has a strong desire, and what is that desire? The desire to be married. A formerly married. Oh, I miss the companionship. I miss the partnership. I miss the one flesh, which is not just about physical intimacy, but about bank accounts and about direction and about plowing a field together in the same way, in the same speed, in the same direction. Oh, I, I really liked that. I knew what that was like. And, and to do that in the Lord, oh, 
I would love to do that. That's the burning Paul's talking about. For the widowed and the formerly married. Now you can apply that principally to the never yet married context. If you grew up watching a good marriage in your parents. Uh, if you've been in the church and you've seen good marriages and you see the fruit of the multiplication of ministry that is possible in a gospel-centered marriage. And if you've read Ephesians 5, which Paul also wrote, and you recognize that a marriage is a living parable of something that transcends these human relationships, it's much bigger than, than a man and his wife. This is about Christ and the church. And God invented marriage back in Genesis so that he could put on display his selfless sacrificial love. How does a husband love his wife? The way Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Look, have you seen a picture of selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love in a marriage? It doesn't matter what the other person does. I'm just going to love and love and love and love one way. If you've seen that, and you gravitate in your heart to that, and you say, oh, I want to do that. I, I want to be the, the kind of man who does that. I, I want the world to see the gospel through a marriage. Now, that's tethered. It, it, it's, a, it's a little bit different than being free to, to be up past midnight every night and discipling you know, high school guys. Uh, or, or being able on a whim to, to fly somewhere and support a missionary. Or, or to study and write and uh, get into the text at all odd hours of the day. Look, you, you can't do all of those things in the same way when you're married. But if your heart burns for, I want to live out the gospel that way, let him marry. It is better to marry than to burn with a desire for marriage. That's what Paul's saying here. If we import into the word burn... Lust. You miss the point of the passage. And you will not repent of lust. And you will drag into your marriage your heart immoralities and make a poor girl suffer under you, under your selfishness. You will never understand sex. You will never do intimacy right. And you will ruin a girl's life. You take into marriage what you are. So if you do not get a hold and put to death the immoralities at the heart level, you will not be fit for marriage. And I want to take a little time uh, just and, and think through with you men. Um, let's assume that someone in this room does not have the gift of singleness. That there's somebody here who would like to be married who is not yet married. I don't know if that's a safe assumption. But I'm just going to talk to that one guy. <laughs> That anomaly in the room. What should you be doing as a man right now to be marriageable? Well, oh, I gotta find the right girl. No, you gotta be the right guy. What does that look like? Let's start with that. Be transformed. Okay? From what to what? From a man of the world to a man for Christ. Yeah! Yeah, you should be born again. You should be experiencing the transformation that comes with the gospel. Not conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12.2, but being renewed in the spirit of your mind. If you're not a Bible-reading man, being transformed internally by the truths of Scripture, you're not marriage material. 
Okay, what else would you put on the list? Practice self-control and self-denial. Practice self-control and self-denial. If, if a man loves his wife the way Christ loved the church, that is a fundamental denial of self. <clears throat> Death to self at every turn. Listen, what does Romans 8 say? By the Spirit of God, we are being led. And you know you are a child of God if you're being led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 tells us what that leading is. Not some mystical divining rod, find water with a secret stick kind of leading. But being led by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. That's the leading of the Spirit. It is a fundamental self-control and death to self. Uh, self-control is listed as one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know the Spirit is active in your life? You're being led by the Holy Spirit to put to, deeds, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you are experiencing control of self, a reign on your passions. And if you're not doing that, you're not ready to be married. Okay, what else should be on the list for marriage material? Prayer and serving the church. Prayer and serving the church. If you do not have a robust, real, personal relationship to God, what, are you going to magically turn on that switch when you get married? Um, if you do not have an active ecclesiology, a love of the church, service to the church, the things we were talking about last night from Ephesians 4.16, what, what are you going to do? Drag some poor girl who's ostensibly uh, been living for the glory of God and service to the church, you're going to drag her into your selfish life? Churchless? No, you've got to be a churchman. Okay, what else is on the list? You've got to be a part of a regular church so you can be with other brothers in Christ who will encourage, see if you can encourage one another, hold each other accountable, and if it's necessary, confront each other in your sin. Yeah, absolutely. The, the one another commands, accountability, fellowship, you're part of the body. Okay, what else should a marriageable man have on his business card and his resume? The will to lead, protect, and provide for all of her spiritual Yep. Uh, yeah. Write that down. Make a book out of that. Whatever you just said. Uh, by the way, what's your name? Keegan. Keegan, thank you, Keegan. Uh, leadership. A, a will to... And say the elements you just gave again. They were wonderful. Yeah, the will to protect, provide, and lead. Okay. Yeah. Emotional, yep. Protect, provide, and lead. Just some practical applications of those things. Um, think about protection which is a death to self. The man puts himself in danger, right? You're, you're walking next to the girl on the sidewalk. Who should be on the traffic side? Okay, this is kind of a silly application, but who's going hit, to get hit by the car? The guy, right? Who puts himself between danger and the woman? The guy. Uh, in Papua New Guinean culture, it's interesting. Um, the, uh, the guy goes first into rooms all the time. Um, and... I asked about it because it seems selfish. Like the guy would eat first. The guy would uh, walk through doors first. And I'm like, man, doesn't the guy open the door and hold it for the lady? Yeah, not in Papua New Guinea. The guy rushes in first. Why is that? It actually is selfish. <laughs> but it was, it was predicated on an old tradition that said there might be a snake in the room. And so the guy as protector goes first. Okay, that was a wonderful principle. It got lost and replaced with selfishness. Everything gets perverted. And I asked the guy, because we were in the city, and uh, you know the guy gets into the elevator. Uh, hey, why didn't you open the door for the, the lady and serve her? Well, the guy goes for, first into the room. The room's an elevator. 
<laughs> yeah, but there might be snakes. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but protection is a real deal. The second one you mentioned uh, is pretty high on my list. Provision. Uh, if you are not providing for yourself, I'm just going to tell you guys, you're not marriage material. You've got to provide for yourself. That means don't be a mooch. Don't use your roommate's shampoo. Get a job, buy your own, and provide some for the rest of the household. Do your dishes, make your bed, fix your car. Uh, man stuff. You've got to do man stuff. And, and whether you do it yourself or contract it out, I don't care. But you've got to see that these things are done. I did think for a while that uh, having kids meant slave labor. So we had five of them. I was so right. I'm a slave. And it's a lot of labor. We also thought we'd have a lot of kids to build a volleyball team. Man, I married Janet. She's six feet tall. We have some volleyball players. My oldest daughter is taller than I am. My number two daughter is taller than I am. My son is six four and a quarter. And my 13 and my 12-year-old, they both gained an inch since January 1st. I'm going to be the shortest in my family. We are building a volleyball team, and now I'm too old to play with them. It did not work out. <laughs> coach. Coach. I'm more nervous as a coach than I was as a player. It's bizarre. All of that means that to be a man ready for marriage, you have to be a man by biblical accounting. If you're a mooch, warning flag. If you're lazy, warning flag. If you're anti-authoritarian, warning flag. And here's what I mean by that. I have four daughters, and I tell them, if you're interested in a guy who cannot hold down a job because he doesn't want to be told what to do, who does not submit to the elders in his local church, who uh, has a bad relationship to his dad, or to his mom, or to his teachers, or to his coaches, or to his bosses, if you're interested in a guy who says, well, I, I don't want to work for the man, I want to, want to work for myself because I just want to do things my own way. Run away. Because a man who does not submit to authority has no idea how to yield, or has no idea how to wield authority. And a man must wield authority in a marriage. And if he is anti-authoritarian in his personal life, he will be the authoritarian in a marriage. And that is a disaster. If you see warning signs of that in your own life, you got to clean it up. I had a conversation this last week. Um, discipleship relationship, sweet young man. And I was just very honest with him. I said, look, it, it, if you were asking me about one of my daughters, I'd tell you no. And I love you. And let's work on some things. I would tell you not yet. <laughs> let's fix some stuff. Guys, if you need to fix stuff, fix stuff. Be marriageable. Be the, be the kind of man that a dad of four daughters, and that's just the state. I told you I feel like I'm 19, but I literally have four daughters. I think about this stuff. I've got one who's in a relationship now. Be the kind of man that a, that a dad of daughters who loves Christ and has a biblical view of marriage says, I want my daughter to marry you. Look, I love marriage. I, I don't want to keep my daughters in my house all the time. 
I want them to be married if they want to be married. But not to the wrong guy. You're not getting out. I will tell you this, it's tough being a guy. You know what you have to do? You have to take initiative. It's the guy that leads in a relationship or leads out of a relationship if necessary. If there's a problem in the relationship, guess who's accountable before the Lord? The guy. So you've got to be the right kind of man. It also means you take risks and you take initiative. What does a man do in pursuit of a godly woman? Be a godly man and run hard after Christ. Right? And you're just running and you're running hard after Christ. And in your peripheral vision, you see someone else, same pace, same direction. You're like, are you running? Uh, you want to run with me? Cup of coffee while we run after Christ? And you take the initiative. And you know what that's like? That's like the Thanksgiving turkey stretching his neck out and handing the farmer the shiny axe. What is this girl going to do with this shiny axe I just handed her? I'm sticking my neck out. I'm taking initiative. I asked her out for coffee. <laughs> okay. Look, if, if, if I'm a godly girl and some joker I don't know is asking me out for coffee, and I'm thinking, man, where does this lead? Sharpen the axe. <laughs> right? So it's tough to be a guy. You've got to take the initiative. You've got to lead. You've got to be the right kind of man. You need to be attracted to the right kind of girl. Look, if you're following Christ, you're not going to be attracted to the Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7 woman. The boisterous, the audacious, the I'm going to do everything I can to get boys' attention all the time. Look, guys' eyes are just like, ooh, who's that? And a godly man says, forget that. So being the right kind of guy makes the right kind of woman attractive in the right kinds of ways and then you got to stick your neck out and it's risky and she'll say no listen my daughter got the reputation of being an anti-aircraft artillery piece <laughs> fire crash and burn on that you know what I mean it's the whole thing um, right kind of guy right time so you be the right kind of guy you got to lead you got to take initiative a godly girl is not going to come tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you're the kind of guy I've been looking for. No, that's your job. And let me tell you how hard it is to be a godly girl. A godly girl has to wait on the Lord. She has to run hard after Christ. And then she has to wait for some boy to become a man and to lead and to take initiative and to take a risk and to stretch his neck out on that tree stump. <laughs> She's got to wait for that. If she desires to be married, she prays, she trusts the Lord. While a bunch of, can I say it this way? A bunch of boys mooching off their roommates, living off their parents, not providing for themselves, not pursuing biblical things, not corralling lust in the heart, are just sitting around wasting time. Where are the men? She's got to wait. That's hard. Uh, last thing I'll say on, on um, it, it's better to be married than to, be burn, than to burn. It is good to marry. And if you're burning with a desire for marriage, it means you must burn with a desire for Christ-likeness and self-control and love and leadership and provision. 
and oil changes and making your bed and, you know, man stuff. That's what you got to pursue. Uh, we left a lot on the table here in this passage. I would commend to you 1 Corinthians 7 as a place to camp and, and look at these principles. Um, there may be a season you run into where it's better strategically not to marry. And right now, if you're not married, guess what? That season is now. In the Lord's providence. So use it well. Use it for the church. Use it for the gospel. Use it to grow in godliness. And if the Lord wants you to be married, um, there's going to be somebody who wants to grow with you in that. And you'll find that a partnership together is more fruitful, more strategic than ministry apart. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for these men. pray that they would be men. We pray that you would strengthen, encourage, and shape them in the ways that you desire. We pray that you would produce many gospel, preaching, uh, God-pleasing marriages from this room. And we pray that uh, men that you have strategically uh, desired to be to have multiplied fruitfulness in seasons apart from marriage. Uh, we pray that they would run after those things with all their might. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Take a five-minute break. Restroom, coffee, muffins, whatever. And then we'll be back here and uh, have a time to interact with our speaker, Pastor Smelly, and... Um,
Yesterday, as we, we reflected on Ephesians 4, 16, and today as we thought of 1 Corinthians 7, so there's a lot that, that he has shared. I want to begin just quickly going back to James's question that was mentioned earlier, and you answered well, Pastor Smedley. just want to share uh, Countryside's position uh, on the question that you asked. Um, it's just fresh in my mind because we recently talked about it. And so I want to read the statement as it is, and then I trust that that, that you will uh, get the answer that, 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 you, that you were looking from, from where we stand. But if there's more, obviously I'm here, and I would love to talk to you more. So let me start with that, and then we'll come to some of the questions that, that we have. Okay? Here is uh, the statement uh, that the elders agreed on. It says, God holds the leadership of his church to the highest standard, a standard unequivocally recorded in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. One specific but often debated requirement is that every elder or deacon be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. This means a married man should be known for a long-standing pattern of fidelity to one spouse. How this requirement will be applied in circumstances regarding a man who has been divorced has been greatly debated. The elders of Countryside Bible Church affirm the following position on this qualification. A divorced man may be considered for service as an elder or a deacon if the divorce occurred prior to conversion or if after conversion there were biblical grounds and they were clearly the innocent party. And it has been a lengthy period of time since the divorce. There is no lingering reproach associated with the divorce, and the man has demonstrated fidelity to his present wife. And so you can see there's a nuance there. There is, um, there is some level of interpretation that the local body of elders exercise. Uh, and lastly, it concludes this way. There is no biblical concern with considering a man who has remarried after the death of his spouse, which clearly... Bible does teach and so um, you know we, we we think of what is mentioned in 1st Timothy 3 and then Titus 1 um, as we think of a man desiring these offices and you know it's it's not a need in the sense that if you don't serve in those offices doesn't mean that you are any lesser a believer or follower of Christ 
but one of the things mentioned there which does introduce an element of subjectivity is that the man be above reproach. Um, and so that's how I would kind of respond to that, that question. Okay. Do you I, want to add yeah, anything? Yeah, I'd love yet? to add just to the above reproach, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the subjectivity there. In, in a very real sense, above reproach is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, th there's a sense in which an elder's qualification is held by the esteem of those under his care. Uh, so how does a man outlive the reproach of something in his past? Um, that is the matter of subjectivity. And so um, if a man is known as a one-woman man because his reputation in his marriage, his fidelity to his marriage, um, makes everybody forget he... <laughs> Oh yeah, he was a he was a, a different guy in his former life pre-Christ or whatever. Um, then he could be above reproach. That's good. Yeah, I was thinking about that too because uh, I know in our church when someone comes forward to be a deacon or an elder, there's this period of time where you know, Pastor Tom will say, if anybody you know approaches this man, yeah. and you, if there's something that is in your mind that that you need to resolve, talk to him, talk to him, and and deal with it, right? Yeah. That's a subjectivity part. Wonderful. Well, um, this is a time where we get to interact with Pastor Smedley and um, would love to hear questions if you have any. I have some questions to get us started because usually it takes a few to get us started and once they come, they don't stop. But we need to stop at around 12 so that we can have lunch together and uh, we can also look forward to the final session. Uh, uh, with Pastor Smedley. So, uh, let me begin by asking some questions and then, you know, you can take as the Lord leads from there. Um, how do you identify what gifts you have and as you think of where to serve in the body of Christ? How would you go about that as you think of singles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I have, in the past, taken one of those spiritual gifts surveys. I don't know, anybody taken one of those? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, I don't subscribe to that view. Uh, I believe that God implants gifts. Those are sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit to each one. Um, I am a, I'm a partial, partial cessationist. That means I believe the revelatory sign gifts that were critical to the first century church have ceased, but God in an ongoing way gives gifts by his Holy Spirit to each member of the church as he sovereignly places them. Um, and so those, the lists of gifts are there. They may or may not be exhaustive, but the best way to find out what you have in terms of spiritual gifting is to serve, serve, serve. You will gravitate to things that you like. Others will affirm there are things that you're good at. The Holy Spirit will bear fruit in the things that you're doing. And, and I think that's the best way to find out what gifts you have. Um, if you believe, hey, my gift is teaching, and you walk up to Pastor Tom and you say, I think I'll be delivering Sunday morning sermon, um, you get laughed out of the room, maybe equipped, you know, someday, young man, you know. Um, so those, those, those self-assessments, look, you just don't trust your own heart. But serve, 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 your life under others, and, and you get input verification. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah, and one of the reasons we, we meet only on Wednesdays is that we all get an opportunity to serve when we're here on, on the Lord's Day. So um, 
our goal, our desire is to see you serve because that's one way. Uh, not only it's in obedience to the scriptures, but also for you to grow as an individual spiritually. Jared, you had a question? Yeah, so um, I might have missed this nuance that you brought up earlier, but when it discusses the unmarried, is that considering biblical divorce or is that unbiblical divorce as well? So at Corinth, I think the situation probably implies those who had biblical and unbiblical marriages and divorces because you're talking about a very early letter, 55 AD, when the gospel has just gone out in a very perverse culture. It's not likely that there were a lot of Christian marriages in you know, 22 AD leading up to this letter. So then I have a follow-up. Um, does that imply then that verse 9, the... That it is better you're married in the burn of passion. That it would be better to possibly divorce in the future again. No. No. Um, I, I understand the logical deduction, but it is not a warranted oh, yeah, textual deduction. Yeah, no. Uh, marriage is to be um, for life uh, as a commitment with no outs. Now, uh, I understand Countryside is a yes-yes church on divorce and remarriage, right? Yes. Biblical grounds, you can be divorced. And if biblical grounds for the divorce and in the Lord, remarriage is possible. That's correct. Okay. I hope that's true because my mom got remarried in this church. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful man, too. Oh, Ron is great. And I've known Ron Turnbull since 1991. Mm. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah. So, And we're, our church is the same. And then the last follow-up. So um, reading that... I, I go back to if you were to marry somebody that was under divorce, you're both considered adulterers. Right. How do we put that in the context of this as well? So uh, the, the, the answer to that is only marry biblically. Right? The, the injunction here, it, if, if you're desiring marriage, just get married, and it doesn't matter to whom or how. Right. No. no. Um, it comes with all the parameters of biblical marriage in the Lord, discernment, <clears throat> Not unequally yoked. By the way, I know the, uh, the unequally yoked verse is like the other dating verse. It's not fundamentally about dating. It probably has fundamentally its immediate application that ministry for the Lord can't be done arm in arm with worshipers of Belial. Exactly. Churches should not be doing partnerships with unbelievers to try to accomplish eternal things. Right. Now, an application of that principle is... Don't date a non-Christian, you moron. <laughs> so and if you are, what's really going on in your heart? Exactly. That's the exactly. deeper thing. Again, the illustration is if you're just running hard after Christ, who's going to be attractive to you? A girl going the same direction, same pace. Great question. Uh, John from UQ, been here for a month and a half, not very long. Um, what constituted marriage in the Corinthian church or just in the time uh, being that right you've got like the legal side of it you've got ceremonial it could just be consummation and then also considering the woman at the well I don't know if she did actually like have ceremony or legally recognize that she was married to all these men but Jesus said you've been married to you know this amount of men so it yeah what what constituted marriage here in this text at the time and is that does that apply today? Is that the same? Is it different? Okay, great question. Uh, we go way back. Um, I don't yeah, know the right. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, 
we don't have the details of what was the formal ceremony at Corinth or the woman at Sychar. Although what's interesting in the John 4 narrative about the woman at the well, um, Jesus knew you have been married this many times before and the man you're now with is not your husband. So whatever the ceremony was, courthouse, shotgun, whatever it was, it didn't happen. She was just living with the guy. And, they, and she knew it was fornication. And she said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Can I change the subjects and talk religion? <laughs> By the way, just this being here brings back memories. The, the first sermon that I ever preached, um, I preached here on a Sunday night from John 4. And um, I had like a preaching lab. In fact, I preached it in this room. This wasn't a classroom. There was a kitchen back here and there's some other things going on. But we, the little kind of cubicle room and, uh, and four men sat across the table and listened to me preach this sermon, one of whom was Rocky Wyatt. <laughs> and uh, man, I, I was excited about John 4, and I'd been reading it and studying it. I had no idea what preaching was, no organization, just kind of a running commentary and a gobbledygook of stuff. Um, the guys helped me form an outline and homiletical proposition and all the rest. And, and one of the things I... I, uh, I remember doing so clearly in that passage as I said, Jesus just nailed this woman to the wall on her sin. He knew, and it, you know, just pounced on her. <laughs> and Rocky Wyatt, um, after all the other guys had kind of analyzed the sermon, he, he took me aside and, into a little corner somewhere, and he said, hey, Smed, um, can I help you rethink Jesus' approach to this woman? Did she have a sinful past? Yeah. Was she living in sin at the moment? Yep. Now, what does the text say he did with her? What were his words? Contrast that with, say, Matthew 23, when he's excoriating the Pharisees and the hypocrites and the false teachers. He was so compassionate with this woman. I'm so thankful that Rocky got a hold of me. That was a life-changing moment. Mm -hmm. Excited about doctrine. Excited about truth. That's what Jesus is like. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he was compassionate with those in need. Um, anyway, that's not the question you asked, but whatever the, whatever the ceremony is in the culture, whatever, the, the, whatever your current day recognizes as getting married, and it may become more important to say whatever my church environment recognizes as marriage, that's what marriage is. The idea of common law marriage, we fornicated until it just felt normal. That's not marriage. Uh, we, we, we lived together uh, until people just said, oh, yeah, they're married, they have two kids, and they share a bank account. That's not marriage. Um, so courthouse, in America, it still is a legal document. Now, what comes under the banner of that legal document? You know, um, right now, two women, two men, maybe three women and a goose. I mean, what's it going to be? They, they can make it anything they want. Language is falling apart. At some point, the church might say, Keep your legal documents, whatever you need us to go through, but we're going to do something else, and we're going to call it marriage with three M's at the front end to redefine it. <laughs> we might do that. But, but if you say, well, cultures have always done it different ways, and, you know, uh, Ruth, and, I mean, you, you try to concoct a, a, a one way to do dating and marriage from the Bible, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Right, work for the same guy for 14 years and marry two sisters. That's not that, that's not a biblical plan. Don't try to construct a dating thing from biblical narratives. Right, 
So we don't know the answer to the how did the Corinthians do it, but we do know that Corinthians knew who was married and who wasn't. And Jesus knew, and the woman at the well knew whether she was married or whether she wasn't. So they might be culturally defined at a time, but they are the norms. And Christians got to follow the norms. Legal under the state, Romans 13, endorsed by the church with a real ecclesiology. You can't just go make it up just because it's different in different cultures. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, second question next to it, it's not really in that. You only get one and a half questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'm just going to stop halfway through it. <laughs> so, uh, verse 32, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, talks about the unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Uh, and then verse 33 and 4 talk about, verse 34 talks about the woman, and you see those two words there, right? Um, verse 34 specifically, she is an unmarried or betrothed woman. And I think those are your two categories, right? That she's unmarried or betrothed, meaning virgin, if you're reading NESP. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see that word used in 32 applying to the man. Does that this verse 32 and verse 33, the um, verse 32 apply to me as someone in that not married category? Yeah, yeah, yeah they do. They do. Yeah. How do we how do we draw that from that? You're asking if the the idea of the betrothed, the principles applied to the betrothed um, from 35 and following apply to the the married or unmarried back in verse 32? Yes. Yeah. I, I do, and I think it's by implication. There is a, a uh, debate about whether the betrothed is the relationship between the father and the daughter who wants to be married, let her marry, or a man and his betrothed, let them marry. There is a debate there. I, I, I don't know that I would settle that debate here uh, in the time that we have. But the principles of um, what is Paul getting at in verse 32, and this is where I would say I would commend to you um, verses 25 to 35 as the section in, in the season of life you guys are in to meditate on, to, to think about, to read carefully. Um, is that the heresy alarm? <laughs> so sorry. And verse 32 gets at the heart of that. Um, I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. Right? I want to give you a picture of this in 1 Timothy 5. We, we talked about the widows. Younger widows get married. But listen to what the older widow uh, does in terms of being free from marriage concerns. Um, this is uh, 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. Now the one who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone, listen to this. This is a life of faith, not a life of selfishness. She has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So that's what it means to be unconcerned about marriage. Freed up for service to the church. And by the way, this widow doesn't have an official position. She doesn't have a title in the church. Some ministry with a label and a bunch of credit that with, for the praise of men. She is continuing in entreaties and prayers night and day. How much missionary work gets done? by those kind of widows? How much real ministry gets done? We, we can think of real ministry by what everybody can see and praise you for. This is real ministry. <clears throat> Listen, my, my heroes in church history, some of them are the guys we would name, all the Johns, you know, Chrysostom to Piper, and all the Johns in between, Calvin, Edwards, you know, all the rest. Um, but 
But, but who are the heroes for me? Those Chinese pastors who were removed from their churches at the communist revolution and put in solitary confinement for five and six decades, who never got to pastor again, never preached another sermon, never got to disciple anybody or even share the gospel, what could they do in their little cages? Pray. Uh, what season has God put you in? Give your life to these 1 Timothy 5, 5 things. Notice the contrast in 1 Timothy 5, 6. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is what? Dead. Dead even while she lives. Um, so uh, how does that relate to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians seven thirty two? Look, when you're not married, you are unconstrained to do what? To Serve prayers and entreaties night and day. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Okay, there was one back here. Yeah, Angel. Angel, Tandara. I've been here for three years. Yeah. Um, uh, this, it might sound a little silly, but it's a practical question. Uh, so, like, um, you know, I like the illustration about Ryan, right? He's a runner. So, if we're not ready, right, to take care of our wives spiritually uh, in all the other ways, um, she, she runs up next to us. Should we run away faster? Right, so like, uh, we're like, just because we're not ready, right, to cut out your eye, uh, or practically speaking, or is it, you know, how does that work? It's a great question. Yeah. So you're you're asking very personal, incisive, autobiographical questions of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was trying to do. Yeah, because you guys know Janet is way out of my league. <laughs> She was when I knew her in college, and she was when we re-met in graduate school five years later. Wiser, more godly, more knowledgeable of practical application of the scriptures. She read Calvin for fun. Um, she, you know, I mean, she was just way out of my league in every category. Um, I happened to be the only guy in Southern California that she knew, and she didn't know me very well. But I was safe to talk to you because I was shorter, and that was never going to be accepted. <laughs> and we both had lived in Chicago and both gone to Moody Bible Institute, and we shared memories. And we had mutual friends. Um, so we talked. And, and the more we talked, the more, I mean, didn't take me long. I want, I want to marry that girl. Um, and she tried to break up with me six times. <laughs> Um, so uh, I asked her to date on April 18th, uh, 1999, um, and she said yes. <laughs> oh man, this is too good to be true. It was too good to be true. A week later, she tried to break up with me, and she said, Smed, did you know that you're shorter than I am? I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, well, don't you think we need to break up? I said, no. And then she wanted to talk through that. Okay, let's talk through that. Second time she tried to break up with me, she said, you know, Smed, when I hang out with my brother, we just talk and we have stories together, we have shared memories and we just laugh and he's just funnier than you are. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, and, and I said, man, this is really serious. She said, don't, don't you think we need to break up? And I said, no. You know, Janet, the, the, the way that you and your brother have shared memories and inside jokes and have a lot of fun together is you've spent a lot of time together. I suggest that we just spend more time together. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty smooth, man. Uh, 
And then the third one was, Smed, did you know that you're not a good spiritual leader? Don't you think we should break up? She was right. I was failing. I was bombing in some significant ways. I was not the kind of man I described to you that you men should be in the ways that I should have been in. I have serious regrets. So this is really autobiographical. She's a runner. I hate running. Um, I mean, running is the punishment for all the sports I like to do. She loves it. Um, and spiritually, she was running way faster than I was and in all the right directions. And I'm a... What God did for me in those moments is I have to step up. Um, I need to get some men around me. I need to be asking good questions. I need to be looking at good marriages. And I had incentive to do it. My suggestion for you men is... Before it's too late, look, Janet was very kind because when she said, don't you think we need it? She always asked permission. Um, she didn't have to. She, she should have said, you're not a good spiritual leader. I'm out of here. That's what she should have said. And, and if I was dad in the situation, I probably would have said it. Um, and, and God was very kind to me in that. Um, I had opportunities and, and a serious incentive to step up. <clears throat> But men, you need to step up before she shows up. Mm. Is that a fair answer? Yeah. Okay, you got really personal there for me. Yeah. It's exposure. <laughs> How did you respond when she said you're not? Well, she asked permission. I said, well, can I try out some spiritual leadership? No. <laughs> Let's not break up. <laughs> but here's what we need to correct. Here's the course corrections. Uh, Here's the direction we need to go. And I will say this. You, you should marry out of your league. And by the way, if you find a godly girl, you will. You're out of your league already. Uh, if you know anything about yourself, you know you, you don't deserve to be married. You deserve hell. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from Yahweh. A grace gift. You don't deserve that. If you think you're God's gift to women, stay away from them all. <laughs> but, but, but if you learn to not trust yourself, to entrust yourself to godly men above you, and to be conformed to the image of Christ, and put yourself under the steady stream of God's word, and be transformed, if you stay humble in that pursuit of Christ, you'll be marriageable. So, you know, I just, um, <clears throat> Janet had been previously engaged and the guy had broken it off. So at one level, um, she wanted to know would I stay in something and be committed mm -hmm. and follow through and be willing to stay in hard conversations. She was test driving those things. And again, it's hard to be a godly girl. How, how does a girl say, okay, here's some joker, some stranger. I don't know anything about him, but if I read my Bible, this guy's a mess. And I'm going to put my life under him? Yeah. Do you understand what, 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 a, what a godly girl is being asked to do? 
to, to get out from under maybe a godly father or to get out from under the, the authority of, of godly elders in the church in terms of the closest connection of authority and put her closest connection of authority to, to some dude? That's a tall task. Guys, you've got a lot to live up to. I will say this. If you are outclassed spiritually, and I, I'm all for aiming high, Literally and metaphorically. Okay? Um, but if you're outclassed, how do you lead a girl that knows her Bible better than you? How do you lead a girl that has theological categories that you don't have? Maybe she's been in a good church her whole life and you just got to one. How do you lead a girl like that? Simple. Direction and pace. What trajectory are you, are you going and how fast are you going there? And a godly girl can follow that anywhere. So don't be intimidated if she knows, you know, why transubstantiation is bad and why propitiation is good. And you're like, I don't know what those words mean, but Jesus loves me, this I know. <laughs> That's okay. Look, marry that girl. Ask her out for coffee. But you run hard after Christ. And a godly girl can follow And that. the journey going there, is, it's not the objective that's important, but the journey there is so wonderful to embrace and um, live, mm -hmm. you know, and just be honest with yourself. But living, going through that journey is beautiful. It's a wonderful well, so thing. The, the, the journey is critical. And what is the journey of the Christian life? It is greater conformity to Christ. First, uh, for, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Holy Spirit uh, is bringing us from one glory to another in the progress of progressive sanctification. The biggest blows to selfishness our marriage and parenting. Amen. So this is one of the reasons it's a good thing to be married. You, your selfishness will be exposed in ways you can't see any other way. And it'll be exposed again when you have kids. So the journey's good. The journey is pain, but good pain. I'm trying to go back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were teaching from 1 Corinthians 7, you know, the aspect of authority and being under authority. You know, it might be easy for some in your life to say certain things to you. And you might think, hey, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know my position. Mm. And I would say you want such men in your life. And I'm thankful for the leaders that serve in this ministry. Who are those kind of men who will not hesitate to tell you as it is? And it has to be easy for some to say it to you, otherwise it will never be said. And so you want someone to be able to confront you, to admonish you, to rebuke you when you're making the wrong choices uh, and to give them the freedom to be able to do that so that we are moving in the same direction which is conformity to Christ. So. Yeah, yeah I, to piggyback on that, uh, one of the things that I would hope would happen after this weekend is that those older godly men who have been down paths, they have regrets and they have encouragements. And, and they would love to spill all over you. Um, their calendars should be filled with you men saying, hey, could you close the gap for me on who I am and what I need to be to put myself in a position to pursue a godly girl? Can you help me close that gap? And these guys should be busy with appointments with you young men. And the second thing that should happen, well, I don't know, can I say it? Yes. Should they be asking girls out on dates? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that should happen too. Uh, 
just to write on that aspect, not the last one. But, uh, <laughs> You know, older godly men, so older godly men, we, we want to ask you, uh, you know, if you were to interact with your younger self, uh, a single adult as you look at your own life, you know, what, what would be some things that you would repeat? That mm -hmm. you would say, yeah, that, that was a good habit, a godly habit that I had that I want to keep doing. Yep. Uh, what would you stay away from and what would you do differently from what you did? Mm, that's great. You know. Great question. Um, so probably different phases of my life, different answers to that question. I think I had 17 girlfriends before I graduated from high school. Um, not good. It was awful. Disaster. Train wrecks. Um, uh, and, and while I didn't do everything that could be done physically prior to marriage, I have regrets. Um, so I would rewrite all of that. Um, I... Uh, my, my, my dad came to faith later in life, um, and my parents came out of a dating era and culture that was different than a good church culture of pursuing relationships. I mean, back in the days, if you ever watched Happy Days, uh, you, you dated a different girl every night of the week, and you had a steady that you went with on Fridays. Uh, that's sort of fiction, but that was sort of the reality. Um, and, and so for me, all the way back to middle school, junior high school, there was encouragement. Who do you like? Who are you attracted to? Uh, who's your girlfriend? You know, from grandparents and parents. I got encouragement rather than discouragement. I wish I had the conviction back then, you're not ready to marry until you're ready to die. Die to yourself, Ephesians 5. And you're not ready to date until you're ready to marry. So don't do it. So that regret has produced a different philosophy in our home. And, and that is not a criticism of my parents. That is a, man, I'm standing on their tall, broad shoulders and hopefully doing something with a little bit more refinement. And we told our kids, look, you will not offend us kids when you do things better than we did. In fact, that's what we're praying for. We've got blind spots. Um, we hope you can take what we give you and do it better than we did. So we, we, we had a no dating policy for our kids in, up through high school. Now, that let our kids have no pressure. Right. It was actually liberating and freeing. Um, and some guy asking Evie out, and she could say, oh, sorry, my dad won't let me. And now it's a big deal. In a, and, and our kids are in a public charter school. Our kids are you know, alone in their faith with their peers. And it's a big deal. Guys are like doing uh, prom invitations, like wedding proposals. Posters, flowers, gifts, chocolate, an entourage of friends with phones filming the whole thing. And these poor guys. I told you Evie was an anti-aircraft artillery piece. You know, big buildup. Man, go ask Evie. You know, Thankfully, Evie plowed tough ground. The sisters follow in her wake, and they all know. They know our policy. Um, but it just meant that when it is time to date... Um, the dating is aimed at something that transcends taking advantage in my youth of wayward affections and silly emotions and peer pressure and conformity to the world and Hollywood romance and all that garbage. And actually aiming what is beautiful and wonderful about marriage. Let marriage define your dating. I wish I had done that differently. 
Um, what I did do that I really loved is I went to Countryside Bible Church. That was great. You should go there. Um, and then uh, from 18 to 25, I didn't date. I, at, at 17 and a half years old, or I guess I was 18 years old by that time, um, just asked the Lord, Lord, please let me not touch a woman until it's time to be married. Lord, let me do this right. And I will tell you, seven years felt like forever. And it felt like forever to me in that time of singleness. And there were seasons where I ran after my singleness well in the ways that we talked about, and there are times where I didn't. Um, I, think, I think that period felt like a long time to my mom. <laughs> she got married at 19. She's like, oh, my son's growing old. We're not going to have any grandkids. But the Lord was kind. So I, you know, I, I wish I had done my dating totally different. I will also say, in my dating with Janet, um, I wish we had not kissed till our wedding day. Now that's a that's a, a personal thing. It, it's a a strongly held preference bordering on conviction, if that makes sense. I, I wouldn't cast that as a law or a rule. But I will say I have presided over three weddings out of about the 30 that I've done, three weddings where the bride and groom kissed for the first time in front of everybody. And those three, zero regrets. 27 others, regrets. That's batting a thousand if you're keeping track. Um, I would put that before you as an idea. A strongly held preference, bordering on conviction. Wish I'd done it different. You, you guys who are married, do you resonate with that? Absolutely. No dissent. Did you hear that, guys? <laughs> can, I, can I just add yes. a little bit to that? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's very deep in my heart, and I... And I believe I should share it with some of the younger guys here that are going through it so they don't make the same mistakes and perhaps have, the, have an incomplete understanding of how they need to go into a marriage relationship and how they want to approach that wife. And sometimes it's too easy to think that, well, I would die for this woman. It must be the right woman. It's not really the question. The question is, are you willing to live for that woman? We're all naturally heroic. We'll all jump in front of the bus, like you were saying before. It's over, and in some kind of noble way, we know we're going down as a hero. That's what guys do. But the tough stuff is when you have a decision every day to live for that woman at your own expense, to have that sacrificial, unconditional, volitional love for that woman as Christ does for the church every day to make that decision. If you can say that about that woman, that I'm willing to live for her, then you've got the right choice. Yeah. I Thank also you. think, yeah. speaking of, yeah. of what he's saying, of, of not kissing until you're married, Scripture talks about as husbands we are to make sure we keep our wives pure and that how Christ wants us to. And then when you start doing those things, you start maybe crossing the lines. So yep. I think that's yep. a really good idea. Yeah, listen, a, a, a young woman is the daughter of the king of the universe to whom you will give account. And until the, all the rings are on her finger, she's not yours. She could very likely be someone else's husband. Do not defraud her, nor your brother. 
Those are serious words. Well, we have maybe a time for one final closing thought, and then I can ask you to close us out and share what a prayer. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on or uh, didn't get to expand earlier or anything like that? Yeah, but uh, not in one minute. Not in one minute. Yeah, why don't we do that? Yeah, so we can, the ladies are getting ready to meet us out. Lord, thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the questions on the men's hearts here. We pray that you would press these things deeply. Uh, we pray that uh, whatever, whatever we have walked through to this point, that uh, as you have been so patient with us, we're still breathing your air. Uh, if we are in Christ, we have forgiveness of all sins. Uh, what, a, what a privilege it is to know you. And, and while we, we can look back with personal regrets uh, on our own sins and, and wastes of time and even uh, defrauding of others, we can with anticipation look forward to what you by your grace will do if we will yield in faith to your ways, to your plan. And so we pray just to have faith, to, to walk forward entrusting ourselves to your ways and your word. And would you be pleased to bear much fruit from the men in this room? Oh God, would you produce um, missionaries and elders and businessmen and fathers and husbands and uh, single guys running hard after gospel progress as you see fit. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.